Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. Come on in. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast. The only show that tries to search out all the secrets that are lurking around in space. My name's Dan. Thank you for listening, downloading and following us. This week, we're taking a look at a plant that is both good and bad. Also, I've got some space news for you. Uh, And I'll answer some of your questions in just a sec, as always. This week, they're on teeth, wind, and why we can't see air. That's coming up. All will become clear after we catch up with some of our alien mates who are trying to get back home. This is NNG. NNG's Meter Motivator. So, guys, you know all about energy, right? No, we are energy. Solar system specialists, no less. So, what's up? Well, I'm on a mission to find out more. I know that energy we use in our homes comes through meters that you have to read. I mean, how do you read energy? It's not like it's a book. And where does the energy even come from? Well, that's an easy one. Come on, let's see where it all starts. We're deep under your Earth's surface. This is where energy companies drill thousands of feet down to reach reserves of natural gas. Gas is one kind of energy that's used to heat your cosy habitats and cooking appliances. Once extracted, it is stored until needed and then delivered to homes, factories, schools, hospitals, you name it, through a network of pipes known as the gas mains. These pipes connect to your home through a meter that measures how much gas is being used. Kind of like a turnstile, clicking each time more gas goes through. Totally. And electricity is just the same. Every time you flip a switch or plug in a device, It's there. And like gas, it's come a long way. Electricity is made at power stations by huge generators. Most power stations today use gas or nuclear to fuel the generators. But some use wood, and obviously wind and water can be used to generate electricity. The electricity is distributed through a network of cables called the National Grid. You'll have seen the huge pylons that crisscross the country. Smaller wires under pavements carry electricity into your homes. And just like gas, there's a meter to check how much is being used so your grand gets the right bill. So let me get this straight. Meters are machines that measure how much gas and electricity are used so energy companies can make sure you're charged the right amount. Exactly. Let's take a look for ourselves. Now where could they be? Hey, this is my grand's house. Her electricity meter is under the stairs. Wow, it's darker than the gloom caverns of Mordulus Infernal in here. Let me throw some light on the situation. So, yeah, look up there. That's the electricity meter. I can see there's a dial that's turning quite quickly, probably because the lights are on and Gran's got supper cooking. There are also numbers to read. No wonder Granny has to stand on a chair to read the numbers. Galactic goblins, that doesn't sound safe. 
and her gas meter is outside by the front door in its own little box. It also has numbers that Gran has to write down. Knowing about how we measure energy is the first stage to becoming a marvellous meter motivator. And being a meter motivator is great to help people around you, like your Gran. Watch out. Looks like we're going to fuse, G. Time for us to pop. Here it comes. Woohoo! I love a bit of fusion. Bye, energy, and thanks. Here it comes. Find out how you can be a meter motivator with L and G. With support from Smart Energy GB. Find out more at funkinslide.com slash energy. Let's answer some of your science questions then. Remember, if you've got anything science-y kind of knocking around your brain, leave it for me as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Drop us five stars in your name as well. Then I can see it, and then I know who to say hello to. Uh, this is from Kerry, who's in Ireland. Hello, Kerry. Thank you for this. Who wants to know, what are teeth made of? Now, teeth are made of four different types of tissue. A tissue is a group of similar shell, similar cells that... Uh, work to do a job together. Now, in teeth, uh, you have uh, pulp. That's the inner part of the tooth. It's very important. It's got the blood cells and the nerves. Just outside of that, you have dentin, which is hard, and it's a yellow tissue. It makes up most of the tooth that you can see, and it protects it. It's really rock hard. After that, you have enamel, which is even harder. Enamel is the hardest tissue that's in your body, and it covers the dentin and lets you chew without harming your mouth. And then finally, you have something called cementum. Can you guess what that does? Cementum. It's around the bottom of your teeth. And it holds it in place in your gum, just like cement. So there you go, Kerry. Those are the four parts of your teeth uh, that make up what's in your mouth. Thank you for that. Right, this is from Eden, who's in Sutton, who wants to know, how is the wind made? Now, it's all because air has different temperatures all around the world and up and down in the sky. Now, hot air rises. Uh, One of the simplest things to know about science, hot air rises because it's lighter it's less dense than the cold air, which sinks down. Now, you've got this happening over and over again up in the sky. Hot air is rising, cold air is going down to the ground. And this movement up and down, up and down, it causes an airflow. And that airflow gets faster, which makes wind. Thank you for that, Eden. Lastly today, this is from Alex B, who's in Norwich, who wants to know, if everything around us is made up of matter, including air... Why can't we see the air? We see things because light is reflected back to us, and that's with all matter. Now, air is a mix of gases, mainly nitrogen and oxygen, and there are quite a lot of gaps between the gas molecules that are in the sky. So, really simply, uh, Alex, the light moves through it without hitting anything, which means it doesn't reflect, so we can't see it. If the gas was bigger, if there was more of it, maybe we might be able to see it. But because it's all spread out, we can't really see anything. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, If you've got something that you want answered next week on the show, you need to leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're looking inside your mind, talking about the brain, figuring out what goes on. Uh, with us is Bettina Ip. She is a practicing neuroscientist and she's written the book Usborne, A Book of the Brain and How It Works. And she joins us from her lab, by the way. Bettina, thank you for being there. I love to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, please. I mean, when, when we get proper geniuses who have looked inside minds 
I mean, you've got to come on. I th- so what I want to do is just like run through loads of questions that I've got about how the brain works. Because with like my arms and with my legs, you can see how they work. You see muscles expand and contract, which move things. But the brain, it's kind of alien to everyone, I think. So I think we'll start off with this. We're talking about arms and legs, actually. When we move, when I get up and when I walk across, when I move my arms, when I move my legs, what's happening inside my brain that lets me do that? Yeah, so when we think about the brain, what we want to see it as is a control center for the things that we are doing. And uh, if you think about actions, like when you want to walk down the steps or you want to grab for your phone, there's a signal that's being sent from your brain to move these muscles that you've just just described. And what we're trying to understand in neuroscience is how the brain does these things. How does the brain control these muscles? And uh, how do we learn to move these muscles? So the brain is the control center for all these things that we're doing and more. So part of it is um, sensory uh, processing. So when the, the, the cells that represent our touch our hearing or our seeing provide input to our to our brain and that's how we can perceive things but the other thing of course is when we want to move things so we're sending signals back to the arms and legs talking about those signals Bettina you you, you said it's kind of like a control center now if we imagine in real life uh, uh, someone in a control room if they wanted I don't know to speak to an airplane or to speak to uh, a train and tell them what to do. They would use radio waves. They would get on the internet and let people know what needs to happen. Yes. From what you've researched, how is our brain talking to our muscles and letting them know how they move? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. And the way that the brain is sending these signals is very, very specific because we know that the brain is made of billions and billions of tiny cells called neurons. And it's really the way that these neurons talk to each other, communicate with each other, that creates the signals that we send back to the arms and the legs. So when when we talk about uh, cells in the book and we, sh- we, we, we try to make them come to life, so we give them like little characters, they look like little characters. But the truth is that our brain even though it looks like one compact organ, it's really composed of billions and billions of tiny cells. You spoke earlier about perceiving things. Uh, That's when we notice what's around us, when we use our senses to figure out what we need to do. Now, one of those is sight. So what's going on when I see something in front of me? What's happening between my eyes and my head that's letting me know what to do? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that many, many hundreds of people are trying to understand in neuroscience because it's actually really, really complex. Um, You can think of the eye as a camera. You know, we're really aware of the eyes because we're using them all the time to look at the things that we're interested in. But what I was so interested in when I started about neuroscience was to understand that to see the things we actually need the brain. So even though the eye is receiving the light and that is showing us 
objects, you know, people outside. It's the brain that makes sense of it. Without the brain, we wouldn't be able to perceive. And therefore, seeing things is created through the interaction between the eyes and the brain. So when we've seen something then, Bettina, uh, maybe in a few years' time, we might want to remember what we've seen. What's happening in that part of our brain? How does it take an experience, take something that we have seen and perceived, stick it in a drawer somewhere, and then how is it pulling out again years later? Yeah, so I think the way to think about it is that when we are, you know, walking into a room and we meet a new person, we talk to them, we see how they look like, how they sound like, we're kind of taking little memory bits of this encounter and we're basically storing the parts that are useful to us or the parts that are remarkable, like maybe the fact that the person um, had something in common with you or had red hair or smelled of flowers. You know, these things are then remembered by the brain in other areas, not the regions that are dedicated only for sight, but regions in the brain that are dedicated to memory. And, and that's a really fascinating thing to think about, um, that there are different areas in the brain that actually help you do different things. And even within the visual brain, uh, what we understand about it is that uh, there are not just one area that helps you see, there are many areas that help you see. And these areas are specialized for certain things, like there's one area that helps you primarily to see the, the general outlines of things, the orientation. There's another area which we know is really, really liking colors, another area that really likes motion. So the information that we're sending into the brain from the eyes is actually processed in different regions in the brain that help you see. If we're storing this information all over our brain, but then we're able to remember it almost like a film, uh, how truthful is that film, Bettina? If we're remembering something do we remember every single part of that experience or do we take a few snapshots and then we try and fill out the rest as best we can? I, I, this is a lovely question because that's kind of at the heart of this, the, the big challenge that the brain has to do every single second, which is to extract the important elements of your everyday life. And, and for example, you know, you see what's in front of you now, maybe just the laptop and the room and everything. But if I ask you to remember bit for bit, if I ask you to make a drawing of what you're seeing in front of you, you would probably only be able to draw your laptop and not the rest because nothing else is important. So when, when we're remembering things, uh, what our brain has already done is give us a filtered reflection of reality that is, uh, is, is kind of minimized to what's important to us, what is memorable to us, so yes, the brain does a lot of things and also it helps us retain the things that are important and forget about the things that are not important. Now, as a neuroscientist, uh, you're in the business of trying to figure out not just how the brain works, but also maybe what we don't know about it. Uh, how much do we know about how our brain works? Or, or is there maybe some untapped potential in there and we could be so much smarter uh, than we are right now if we just manage to unlock it? Well, there's plenty of things we don't understand and that's why neuroscientists are so incredibly busy working at answering them. I mean, in, in my research, what I'm trying to understand 
is how our brain is able to see in three dimensions. You know, it, it, I mean, we can say it's, it's, we're seeing in three dimensions, but to understand how the brain actually creates this three dimensions is really, really difficult. You go into the cinema and you put on those glasses and most of us are able to see this kind of vivid pop-out depth, but some of us will not be able to do that. And, and that's because uh, sometimes, you know, when we grow up, uh, one of the eyes doesn't point in the same direction as the other, which means that when uh, during development, when the vision, when vision is uh, developing, the 3D system doesn't get the normal experience. So we're using uh, the brain to understand how we learn. And that's something that we're really trying to understand because we want to help people learn better. We want to help people relearn things that they have lost because of uh, brain damage or trauma or disease. And, uh, and those are mysteries that the brain can, can give us, but it needs a lot of time to study. Uh, now, you, you've written this book and published it with Osborne. Love all of Osborne books. They're so bright, so colourful. They, they really get to the heart of a subject. And this one is the, the book of the brain and how it works. We, we've run through some of the stuff in this chat, Bettina. Uh, can you just tell us a bit more about what's in the book? Well, I can tell you a little bit about where it starts. And um, it's really a book that's it's like a journey, you know, it's like somebody takes you by the hand and say, hey, let's go on a journey together. I will tell you about this brain. And it's narrated through the eyes of a little girl who has a bicycle. And uh, she, she cycles into a forest and she meets a friend who happens to be an owl. And the owl then introduces her to her brain and tells her that there are these things in her brain. So through this journey together, we learn about the different functions like memory, like vision, uh, like like uh, like learning, and uh, in the end, the the girl realizes that she has many more questions than she had at the beginning, <laughs> which is a great place to be because every every scientific question starts with curiosity, and I think this book uh, is for is for children to understand how interesting. The brain is and how curious they can be about it and how many questions they can ask amazing you can get some of those answered as well the book is Osborne book of the brain and how it works uh, by Bettina Earp thank you so much for coming on the show Bettina I've had an amazing time great pleasure for this week's dangerous Dan we're looking at a plant that is so witch-like it's one of the stars of Harry Potter uh, how well do you know the first book do you remember Devil's Snare well, it's an actual thing. Uh, it's a name for a plant which is called Jimson weed. It's also known as Angel's Trumpet. Now, there's an old saying describing people who eat Jimson weed. It makes people hot as a hair, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beetroot and mad as a hatter. It sends you round the twist. The plant is from the nightshade family. We've spoken about those before on the show. It's got a wide bulb that can look bluey pink, possibly even sometimes white. Uh, and it stinks too. It smells foul. So if you smell it, you know that you, sh that you should stay clear. Now, the seeds look very terrifying. You know that you want to stay clear. It's like a spiky acorn. And when these are eaten, it all starts to go wrong. You start to see things. Your heart will beat like crazy. Things can get very bad. You can be nauseous. You can get headaches. They are extremely dangerous. But even with that, some cultures around the world 
uh, use it as part of a medicine. We see this quite often with our dangerous Dan, don't we? Things that are very dangerous and can be deadly also can be used to make you better too. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's time to look into the sky now with our weather genius. This is Marina Ventura. Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers. Hi there, Marina Ventura here. I love finding out about the natural world, and that includes the Earth's climate. We know that weather can change from one day to the next, but climates can change too over the time span of years, centuries, or even longer. So I'm on a mission to fill MapApp with the latest climate information with the help of some awesome climate explorers. Come on then, let's go. The oceans play an important role in the world's climate. As well as having an effect on air temperatures and rainfall patterns, they soak up more than 30% of the carbon dioxide that humans produce. There are loads of ways that the oceans can help us spot changes in our climate. If you've ever been snorkelling or looked in rock pools on the beach, you'll know that the ocean is full of all sorts of interesting plant and animal life. What you find under the water depends on the local conditions, and if those conditions change, then those living things may change too. We're going to meet two real-life ocean explorers to tell us how we can learn more about our climate through the oceans. Here's Sina and Emma. Hi, I'm Sina. I look at tiny fossils from the ocean to learn more about the different kinds of plants and animals that were around when the Earth was younger and much hotter. How does this help us learn about climates today? Because in the future, our climate may be similar, much warmer than it is now. It helps us to understand how life in warmer conditions is different to what we have now. My fossils come from a time over two and a half million years ago, when there were forests all the way up to the Arctic. Hard to imagine. That sounds really interesting. What equipment do you use to learn from these fossils? I use a powerful microscope to identify different types of tiny fossils. Some are from plants, including pollen, and some of marine microorganisms, such as plankton. Tiny creatures that live in the oceans. Fantastic. Information uploading map app. Hi, I'm Emma, and I study coral reefs deep beneath the oceans and research what they are eating. People think coral are plants, but they're actually omnivores like us. They eat both animals and plants. I study both microscopic plants, they're called phytoplankton, and the marine organisms in the area to see what's being munched the most. Coral makes a safe place for baby fish, with lots of nooks for them to hide from predators. So healthy coral means a wide range of other wildlife can survive. A change in the conditions, like the water getting hotter or colder, or more acidic, can affect what's available for the coral to eat. This has a knock-on effect on the other marine life, so it's a good way to identify the effects of climate change. Coral can be found a long way down. How do you collect your samples? We collect corals up to 2,000 metres below the surface using a very cool robot submarine. Some ocean scientists, though, travel down in small pods that can carry a couple of people so that they can see the coral for themselves. Sounds like a great way to see the effects of changes in our climate. Ready for upload, Mappy? Load me up! Next time we'll be high, if not dry, finding out more about how studying the clouds in the sky can help us learn more about the Earth's climate. 
see you soon. Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers, supported by the Natural Environment Research Council, the science of the natural world. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash marina. Right, let's do this week's Science in the News and some sad news to start us off. One of the first people in space has died. Michael Collins, he stayed in orbit around the moon on Apollo 11 as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touched down. Uh, He controlled the module up there to make sure they could come back. Uh, He passed away last week and the space world will miss him terribly. Also staying in space, China has launched a key module of its new space station, The Tian module, which is where the crew will live, it was launched on a rocket last week and China hopes to have their new space station in orbit near the ISS and working next year. And finally, nearly 40 big... And finally, nearly 40 UK businesses have warned that a new law in Brazil will speed up deforestation. The law could make forest land be owned by companies and people uh, instead of the government, and they can do with it what they want. But big businesses and supermarkets have signed a letter uh, saying they don't want the plans to go ahead. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you for listening. If you've got something sciencey on the show uh, that you want answered on the show, you need to leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. Find the Science Weekly there. Leave us your name. Leave us five stars. That'll help me see it. And then I'll try and get around to it in the next couple of weeks. I will be your science Sherlock. If you want more uh, podcasts from us at Fun Kids, you can get them wherever you get your shows. Give us a follow there. Find them on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!